Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Julia Hobsbawm. She's an entrepreneur, writer and consultant who addresses the challenges of this hyper-connected age. She is the author of six best-selling books, including The Simplicity Principle and Fully Connected. And today we're discussing her latest book, The Nowhere Office, a book that proposes a radical new way of thinking about work, both now and in the future. This isn't an anti-office book, but it's more a look at what the world now looks like. Are offices now needed in the same way? What does the future of work look like? It covers the new challenges of remote working, repurposing offices for more creativity, managing working from home teams and how to work with more purpose and a greater work-life balance. So all the topics that I'm interested in discussing on this podcast, and it reminded me so much of writing The Multi-Hyphen Method pre-pandemic and talking about all these themes. So it was really great to catch up with Julia about her new book that really is a blueprint for how we move forward. And I found it really fascinating speaking to her about it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. The book is called The Nowhere Office. I really recommend it. Here is the conversation with Julia. Welcome, Julia, to Control-Alt-Delete. I've wanted to talk to you for such a long time, kind of waiting in the wings to grab my moment with you. So it's really exciting to be talking to you on publication day for the Nowhere office. Before we dive in, because I've got so much to ask you, I feel like such a kindred spirit with everything you've written about in this book. It's amazing. Would you just be able to give the listeners a little bit of a backstory? I know that's a really impossible question, but what, what has led you to this book? In a oh, very quick roundabout way. I'd be delighted. But before that, if I could just have a fangirl moment back at you. I mean, it's really a pleasure to be on this programme because I think the stuff I write about is is very um, uh, in harmony with a lot of the things you think and write about. Um, I am a bit of a geek and nerd about work and management. I always have been. And I don't quite know why, although... A long time ago, hundreds of years ago, I was a researcher on a TV programme and one of my guests was um, the late Sir Peter Parker, who was the head of British Rail or who had been the head of British Rail. And he, I, I was his booker um, for his book. And I, I just remember having this amazing conversation with him in the green room. I must have been about 22 about management style and how you get stuff done. And I remember thinking goodness, for someone without a degree that has no known background in management or social practice, I'm awfully interested in this. And I I am. And so that is the background is I'm really interested in how work works. And I always have been. And I'm also interested in the intersection with well-being. So here I am, 57 and something. This is my sixth book, my third in five years. And really, everything I write about um, is is about that intersection, I would say, between who we are as human beings and who we are as worker beings. Mm. And that's where I've got to with this book today. I love that. And it couldn't be more relevant. I think it's such an interesting time we're in now, isn't it? That all of the almost fantasies and the daydreaming and the what ifs are now weirdly actually about to happen or could happen because we're in this time of massive change. And yeah, I, I can't wait to to really dig into the book. But before we do, I thought we could unpick the title because I know you've said it's not anti-office. This yes. isn't I hate all offices and we need to get rid of them completely at all. And that's why I think the title of the book could grab people. And then when you read it, you, you go really deep into it. Well, the Nowhere Office definitely isn't advocating no office, but it is... Um, trying to observe what's happening at the moment. And it is trying to say that for a number of reasons that are cultural, technological um, and triggered by the pandemic, I think I might be totally wrong, of course, Emma, but I think it's fair to predict at this point that wholesale nine to five return to the office for knowledge workers in developed economies is unlikely to happen because... We just want to have our lives and we want to have flexibility. Now, that's a bit of an uncomfortable truth for lots of managers, bosses, property developers, governments, people that would like it a lot cleaner and a lot simpler. But that isn't how we are. And so before the pandemic, we knew that um, burnout was back in a big way um, and 
office life was not great. You know, I spent a lot of my time in the pandemic watching uh, TV shows about dysfunctional offices, which in fact, a lot of what preoccupies us in entertainment is dysfunctional offices. Um, Call my agent or Bosch or the office. And so I wanted to look at what is the office to us, even though like everybody who's had office life, you remember it. It's not an insignificant thing in your life, office life. Um, And I probably called the office the Nowhere Office because when I started to think about this, I had quite a strong flashback to being 21 in my first big office, which was Penguin Books on the King's Road. It was 1985. And the Talking Heads song, The Road to Nowhere, played again and again and again. And I had a flashback to that moment and I thought we are nowhere near that moment, that analogue day when there were no computers, there were landlines, there were filing cabinets. And so it got me thinking. So the Nowhere Office is really not anti-office. It's not about no office, but it's about working life. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite stretchy and elastic. Yeah, it's (laughs) really great. And for people who are geeking out about this topic, it's such an enjoyable read. And I found from my perspective, because I wrote about multi-hyphenate working like four years ago now, and I remember going on some BBC radio shows and being being told (laughs) to my face that I was entitled a millennial who doesn't want to hold down a job, that I that my generation, you know, were just trying to make up the rules as we go along. And and now I, I sit with that feeling of like, God, that was such a weird time even then. And I was really butting against people just being like, that's not how it how it is. What are the challenges then? Why do people feel so defensive about this change, do you think? Well, I think you've put your finger on it. People are defensive. And there is a almost like a mini culture war emerging, isn't there, between what I would call hardliners and softliners. I think the resistance is partly because economically it's pretty major, the implications of the, the shift. My book is full of what I call shifts, mm-hmm. you know, the shift from, in some cases, the city to the suburb, for example, you know, lucky suburb but not so lucky city centres. There's a lot at stake. So I think that's partly the resistance. I think partly it's control. Managers, bosses, to use old speak, they sure as hell like to control. And a distributed workforce, to use the language, um, is not as controllable. Uh, Certainly the whole idea of surveillance software, God help us, uh, you know, that's not a runner. So actually this moment is freedom and flexibility. The truth is what we're seeing, I think, are the early shoots of promise that if you give people flexibility and trust and you let them work with you to set what success looks like, they are more productive, they are more engaged. But it's uncomfortable. And I think that's the root of the resistance it's uncomfortable. Because mm. there was a piece in the FT, I think, recently about how our loyalty to our job is shifting and changing and loosening. Like the fact that we're not in the office as much means that we are realising our hobbies, how much we miss our family, what we're interested in outside of work. And a lot of corporations probably don't want people to discover that, which is kind of maybe cynical and a bit sad. But I find it really interesting that we're in this time now where we are solo individuals who can work with all different countries. Why do we need to be in one office at one desk in one chair? It does seem so backwards. It does. And I mean, I talk about a new demographic almost that I call the solopreneur, because I think we're all making our own luck. I mean, the caveat which is worth saying, Emma, is of course lots and lots of people don't have any freedom or any choice. Lots of people work in front lines and lots of people who work in offices don't have any choice either. But what's really fascinating is in the two years since the pandemic, the lid has been lifted on a latent set of desires that precede the pandemic by decades. And those desires are to have meaning and balance and um also purpose in the work. So I think there's two competing crosswinds here. One is that people realise an awful lot of work is just hopeless, pointless and has toxicity in it. I know we all evangelise a little bit too much in my view about the water cooler. You can create the water cooler in all sorts of ways. You don't have to go through a turnstile and up 15 floors to get the water cooler. But okay, fair enough. 
there is a certain amount of um, emotion around that. But the truth is that we have wanted balance and a connection to our home lives for many years. It's just the corporate world, the organisational world has denied it. So the right to request is a very dry speak for legislation, uh, which only came in pretty recently anyway. Flexible working was, guess what, requested by women and largely ignored uh, until both genders had acknowledged both male and female genders, had acknowledged that it's quite good to have a life, isn't it? And not just a job. But until the pandemic, that hadn't been put to the test at scale. It hadn't been experienced by loads of blokes. Although you go back in history and there's a lot of evidence of flexible working having been tested and succeeding albeit unintentionally. So back in the 30s, Kellogg, the industrialist, brought in a six-hour day because he wanted to give more workers work rather than less workers work. It turned out to be an extraordinary success. So I, I was really interested in looking at the history of these desires and campaigns because they're not new. And the narrative is, oh, they just came along with the millennials, pesky millennials and Gen Zs, you know, shaking things up. It's not like that at all. It's just you've you've in fact led a lot of the change, which I think is really positive. But your the reason your book as well is actually quite comforting is because I think in this time of great chaos and the fact that if you take away the office, actually it's scary because then there's no democratizing of everyone having the free Wi-Fi at work or we have to buy our own office equipment or people can't afford the right back support, you know, people are like just left to kind of do whatever they want. And the fact that you could be lonelier, you're working longer hours. I mean, I love working from home, but there are downsides. But what your book is saying is like, this is a massive change. So we need some sort of blueprint. We can't just all be kind of running around. You see, I don't think the place and the space matters. I think it's what's going on in the work. And I worry that the whole question of work and work's meaning has been either sidelined or somehow belittled. There's been a huge movement. I don't know what you think about this. I mean, again, I might be completely wrong. One of the wonderful things about writing books is you gain confidence, don't you, to just say, well, this is my belief, Uh, but I'm very happy for it to be challenged. But my belief is very firmly that we need to talk much more about what work is and why it matters and why it doesn't matter, because that is what counts. That's what you get paid for, whether you work two days a week or three days a week or in a team or remotely. And I worry slightly that pre-pandemic, we all got very caught up in the idea of well-being and mindfulness and discussions about mental health as if they somehow drifted across the landscape and made work better, rather than the fact that a lot of work doesn't work because... You don't get paid enough or your conditions aren't fair or you've got a horrible manager or the timelines or the deadlines. You know, this brings me back to my management geek side. I'm really interested in the in the weeds of what work is. And I think we should talk about that and not so much the detail, if you like, which is for some people in some industries being in on rotation intensively, maybe even seven days a week will work. For others, being almost fully remote will work. Do you know what I mean? So I would like a mass customization with some guidelines and norms that will evolve. Uh, And I do appreciate you've said this before. It is scary. It's, It's a moment of disruption. But I think the entrepreneur in me, I've run small businesses for a long time. The entrepreneur in me is not frightened by the disruption. I actually welcome it. I think we need to be having these intense conversations about the meaning of work in our lives rather than just where we work and when we work. It's so true. I mean, I haven't worked in an office for like eight years now, I think. I I feel very out of the loop. I feel very, um, yeah, outside of the conversation sometimes when I'm with my friends who are being forced to go back to work and sit sitting on the tube again for an hour to go back into an office that doesn't even offer them anything. It's quite interesting in the book, I think someone had quoted that we still need offices we just don't need them for work. Yes, that I was Ben that Page was so of Ipsos. Yeah, I think the nine to five is not 
a practical or productive model. The commute, of course, some people loved the air pockets of time. You know, there's no absolutes, but in general, the commute was a time suck and a cost. The technology now means that knowledge work that requires a keyboard or a screen can be done not from a traditional desk. So I envisage a world which is much more like the space we're recording from, a co-working space, where the offices, the fixed bricks and mortar places, are stopping off points that you visit. And you visit for community, for culture, for the water cooler, but you don't visit them for fixed blocks of time set by somebody else who's not even in the office when you go there. Mm-hmm. And that that model, it occurred to me, is rather like the family. I've got lots of children and stepchildren and uh, a baby grandson. And I've watched the ebb and flow of the way a large blended family, which is now more normal than not, operates. And the truth is you coalesce around different buildings and spaces at different times, don't you, for masthead events like birthdays. So why can't offices be like that? Why can't offices by default be places where you gather to exchange and to meet? Conflict resolution is much better done face to face. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to say, oh, you don't need to be anywhere. I there are some companies that go on about being fully remote. That's that's not for everybody by any means. It's just not practical. Although I did note that 71% of people when surveyed by, I think it was YouGov, said that given the chance they would work remotely from another country. But of course, you know, you have to be a particular generation and you've got all five generations working in the workplace at the moment. That's the other unique moment that we're in. I think, mm. I think the pandemic was obviously a unique moment in living memory. I think the way that technology has entered our lives over the last uh, 25 years in particular has been seismic, especially as we're just tipping into that metaverse era. Mm. And the third is this question of the generations working together. I found it interesting during the pandemic with Zoom that you could put a background on and no one would know where I was. And also the idea of being pregnant for nine months, I had friends who didn't even set foot anywhere and could just be themselves and be, you know, from the neck up and do their work and not have to sort of show up to an office and kind of do all of that awkward stuff. And there's a freedom to that. I think what we're struggling for and what we will get to um, is work-life balance. I mean, I'm an editor at large for Ariana Huffington's um health and well-being tech portal Thrive Global. And she's long advocated, mm. you know, being kick-ass, but also ne- learning how to look after yourself. Um, and she's been very instrumental in advising organisations to start pivoting towards a much more integrated uh, acceptance of the human in the corporate machine, if you like. What I am taking issue with, though, is also bad politics and bad management. Mm -hmm. And for me, again, that's a sort of inner geek thing. It's not for everybody and, you know, but there, there are a couple of chapters on that in the book, which is really saying, let's call it out. You know, we know how dreadful politicians are. Let's also call out terrible leaders and managers who go on and on about how great they are. The L word, you know, leadership. I'm not really a fan of it, to be honest. Yeah, I know what you mean. It feels like so much is changing. And I love the part with Bruce Daisley being interviewed as well. He's someone I also really enjoy his thoughts on work. And this idea of the fact that, you know, when you would kind of go to an interview and you would be interviewed, now it's flipping. We are interviewing the employer to say, well, are you flexible? What are the hours like? Can I do X, Y and Z? Do you think that is actually changing and that people need to have that in mind, that they need to be more competitive when it comes to attracting people? Yes, I think it's become in, again, this this ecosystem of knowledge workers. Um, you know, I, I, I fully appreciate there's lots of people out there working who think what on earth you want about you lot, you know, hybrid, this, that and the other. I don't have that choice. But the working world is... Um, moving more and more freelance. About half of America's workforce will be freelance by 2030, which is pretty incredible. And it is becoming a um, seller's market rather than a buyer's market. And that is 
that is a revolution. That actually means that instead of um, sort of being, if you like, a Goldman Sachs or a Slack or a Google and saying, you know, come on, little kitties, come and come and pick up the, the catnip that we're leaving for you, perks and pay and status and glamorous offices. It's more, what do you want? Let, let us listen to what you're telling us about when you come together and where you come together and what we're doing together. Mm-hmm. So actually, I think it's a big alignment of power. However, the one thing I would be critical of is um, where I think uh, power is shifting away from, if you like, the millennials and the Zs in probably quite a necessary way is I think identity politics in the workplace has got very detailed. And, I, you know, of course, everybody must have whatever identity they want. But I'm really interested in the work and how we get the work done. And so I'd quite like an, a, a sort of two-way street, really. Do you know what I mean? Mm, I'd I like I mean. a situation where, on the one hand, managers and leaders do a lot more listening and a lot more iterating and trialling. But I'd also like there to be... I hate the word snowflake, really, because it's so derogatory, but a less sensitive mindset to being a worker, which is more, can I do this job? I'd like to flip everything, Emma. The thing I hate more than anything else, probably because I'm more of an entrepreneur than a corporate person, although I've worked in and with corporations for a long time, I can't bear the 360 degree appraisal. I find it genuinely offensive, the idea that you know, your co-workers have to sort of say what they think about you behind your back and you've got to fill, I've got friends of mine that fill in forms for that. I mean, I find it just shocking and hideous. What I'd like to do is flip it so that your employer says, tell us what are we doing for you? How are we faring? Not the personality. So, you know, you can hear me getting all excited about it. I'm really up for sort of just turning quite a few conventions on their head, but it's it's in surround sound. I don't just want to say, oh, the bosses have got to get better at managing. I also want people who come to work to to bring, to use that parlance, their best self. Yeah. To not come with a victim mindset, to not come with an antagonistic who's against me mindset, if they do, but to say, I'm part of something. And it's the evangelist in me. I, I love the idea that work can be more productive and purposeful. And um, I think if we focus on it, it can be. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I've always found it very odd. And that's why I feel, I say I'm lucky. I'm lucky because there are many factors into how I could quit my job. I mean, I got my first book deal and sort of had enough in the bank to be like, right, that's it. Because the idea of asking, even begging to go to a doctor's appointment, to have 25 days a year for holiday. I mean, it was all just like, really, is this going to be my life? Because I really want to opt out. And if it means earning less and being free, that is, that's fine. But I find it really interesting what you're saying about how we do focus so much on the environment and we're not really talking that much about the work. If you think about the corner office and like the devil wears Prada and, you know, being a CEO or whatever. And then Great movie, and then, by the way, though, the most one of wonderful my movie. It's just the best. <laughs> and then we had the WeWorks and it was like, right, now we're going to hot desk and now we're going to work from second home and now we're going to, um, you know, hop around. But then now your book's come along and said, well, maybe there's like this other way. Yeah, I, I do think there is an elephant in the room. And I think that elephant in the room is why doesn't work work? Mm. And in fact... um. I've only had one bad review so far or or sniffy review. The rest have been really nice. But the, the sniffy review basically put the view that I'm far too pro-work and that those thinkers and sociologists who say that, you know, the capitalist system is denying us our freedom and our liberation are much more right. And someone like me is just really a dressed up, you know, um, bad businesswoman. And I think, hang on a minute, do we really want a world where we all sit around, you know, not working? I, I'm not, I don't really buy that. I want to reform work. I think work has not been up for reform. I think despite what is spent on leadership and management and training and well-being, I don't think any of it has really worked significantly. 
And let's talk about that mm. rather than, oh, let's all be existential and, you know, follow the lying flat movement in China, which I write about in the book, where some people just give it up completely. And there's a whole slew of books actually out on this subject about how work is a terrible tyranny. And I'm thinking, well, it is if you're terribly badly managed and badly paid and it's not fair. And, you know, there's lots of ways in which you can say work is just bloody awful. Yeah. But my point is... Does it have to be? That's so funny, isn't it, that that's two extremes and there's so much in the middle of both of those things, isn't there? Like pro-work, anti-work. It's yes. like, well, what about the idea of being of service to a community? What about being of service to the world? What about if your passion earns you money and makes the world better? To me, that's work. To yeah. me, that's giving back and also giving to yourself and being of value. Yes. I mean, what I wanted to do here is I should probably say at this point that even though I write about management and business, I'm, you know, the smallest entrepreneur on the planet. I, I haven't created any enormous wealth or anything, but I've done what I hope has had meaning. My latest company is 17 years old, as old as my youngest child. And and I I I love business and I love hiring people and working with people. And this book is in a way a distillation of what I've come to understand produces good work. Um, and I recognise that it's a lot more complex if you've got to scale that out across uh, hundreds of thousands of employees as the large organisations do. But I think at the heart of it is the same yearning. We want to be seen and heard and understood and valued and to earn money. Mm. And the idea that we can bypass that in some way seems to me a bit of a hide into nothing. Um, I'm not that revolutionary, I'm afraid. I'm pretty much like, come on, let's fix what we can fix. I mean, the amount of studies over the past however many decades that say in black and white the happier your employees are, the better they will work. It just baffles me sometimes the amount of misery that happens in offices and, and in work. And I mean, I think it's like 81% of Londoners hate their jobs, like underline hate. And it's like, that's not great. And that's really bad. We spend so much time at work. Work is a huge part of our lives. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, again, there's this sort of pull-push um you know, hardliners and softliners approach, there is a narrative that work is this wonderful, gorgeous, creative community and it's all la la and, and it's all work, yeah. Soho and it's all, you know. But the truth is when you look at dramas and fictionalised accounts and I've I've used um, epigraphs in front of my chapters are all really kind of literary um, comments on the world of work and you realise that the underbelly of work um, is all around the meaning of of the people around you and how you're managed and led. Um, nobody's really saying, I don't want to work. They just want to have their lives as well. And I track this moment that led to what I'm calling the Nowhere Office. So the Nowhere Office, I hope, is a catchy title, but it kind of is a phase of work that I, I think we've entered mm -hmm. um, with a bang in March 2020. But it was preceded by a period of time I call the co-working years that began in about 2006, seven, when the internet really roared into working life. And there was a brilliant book that I still love that was published then um, by Tim Ferriss um, uh, called The Four Hour Work Week. And I think that book was a game changer for me because it put the view that you can do great work, work that your managers need you to do that you don't shirk on your responsibility to deliver, but that you do it on your terms. And that really opened my eyes. You know, there are some books in your life, aren't there, that you're never quite the same again. You never look at the world in the same way again. I think Susie Orbach's Fat is a Feminist Issue was probably one of those books for me. And certainly the four-hour work week was. Um, you know, and I think we're in that moment again. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that because the trust of saying to someone, I don't care where you are or how you do this, just get it done. And I remember someone 
years ago when I worked in an office because I worked in big offices and you would just be like a little cog like doing your thing and I actually loved those years of my life but knew it wasn't really working and I remember my boss saying to me right I need you to do this presentation you've got a month I don't care if you've come in I don't care if you work from a cafe I don't care if you work from bed but this is your this is it you you have to present this in a month and I just remember feeling so excited and ju- jumping out of bed. And I did go into the office quite a few days a week, but it was on my terms. And I know that the Edelman Trust Barometer crops up in your book. And I quoted, I always quote that barometer whenever I'm sort of like mapping out what I'm going to say, because I think the trust barometer says really what we're all thinking, which is we want more autonomy. That's the word, isn't it? Yes, autonomy is the word. And the evidence is that managers and leaders hoard it for themselves. Mm. Guess what? Um, Yeah, I think this moment is interesting because it is fundamentally about power shifting and it is about, you know, Ipsos um, is changing its name, I think, from Ipsos Mori to Ipsos, in case you thought I'd forgotten the other word. Um, Ben Page of Ipsos gave me an interview um, in which he said offices are going to be places where you sort of almost do anything other than work itself. You do the bonding and the and 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 so on. Some of his data is really interesting, which is that around about fifty nine to sixty percent uh, across the generations and across the life stages, if you like, all want flexibility. So mm-hmm. even harassed working parents, usually mothers, for whom you know goodness, having to supervise homework in lockdown and go on a Zoom and carve out a space that wasn't noisy is enough to give anybody stress. They want flexibility. Same as the Generation Zs who they want the creature comforts of the office. They absolutely do want the community and the better coffee, as I call it, but they don't want to give up their freedom either. And so freedom has crept in. Flexibility has crept in. Technology is the third person in the room. We can't wish that away. You know, American companies spent $15 billion a week in the first months of the pandemic getting homeworking, teleworking, as it's put, up to speed. We're not going to undo that investment. Mm. So I think we've got to go forward into the future, but have an emotional literacy and have a kind of almost political sensibility around it as well. But it's interesting. I love all the offices I've ever worked in. And you said something similar just now. I have such fond memories. I love my work set up now, but I really miss the office life. I mean, I met my husband in an office, like I had the best time. And without that, would I be would I have met the people that are in my life now from the off? You know, it was a huge part of my growing up. So what's fascinating is what you've just said. And really what I'm saying is we are a bundle of contradictions. Exactly. We want it all. But the truth is that in a way, I think it is more of a realistic reflection. So my uh, husband was always the house husband. He's an antiquarian bookseller. He works from home. He's always worked from home. He does the dishwasher, he does the washing, he does the shopping. And we once had one of those marital moments, you know, it's all right for you. No, it's all right for you. And and I I remember it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, about 15 years ago. So long before any of this was, uh, was, was happening. Um, and the sun was streaming through the kitchen window. And he said something quite sort of, wifey, if I can be, you know, it's all right for you. You know, you're having a lovely time swanning off and meeting for drinks and blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, yes, but you've got this. I want the sunlight streaming in over the kitchen table at 11 o'clock to have a cup of coffee just to think. And, And I remember we both looked at each other in that moment and I could see that we were sort of reframing each other's perspective. And that's what I think has got to happen now in work We've all got to sort of look through the the lens of each other. Mm. It's not either or. It's not yeah. two legs good, four legs bad. I, I don't. I think that slightly antagonistic era that reached a pitch of frenzy just before the pandemic. I don't think people want to go back to that anymore. No, it's like the the bag of snakes has opened and we can't put the snakes back in. And that's what's really exciting for this turning point. But I I always thought. And this this was years ago when I was like, oh, well, what do I know? But I thought 
if any business is going to start from scratch now, or indeed the companies I worked for, why don't you ask your employees what they want? Why isn't there a survey that's like, are you a morning person? Are you a night owl? Do you have kids? Absolutely. Are you going through an emotional crisis? Just like, we don't know anything about each other half the time. And we expect everyone to just bend themselves to the shape. Well, back to my sort of inner management geek, one of my favourite um, business case studies uh, was, I think, on BBC Business a long time ago. And it was about a factory that burnt down in a fire and they were rebuilding it. And the builders had kind of come in and they were about to start work. And somebody said, hang on a minute, let's ask the workers would you put anything in a different place, given that we haven't started building yet? And of course, they were flooded with fantastic ideas, productivity, raw productivity, output per worker, blah, 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 which you can measure much more easily in a factory, went up massively. That stayed with me. Another geeky case study was in Fast Company magazine about um, airports where we all feel nostalgic, at least I do, for airports. And there was a particular airport in the middle of Midwest, wherever, in America, and the uh, queues were terrible to sign in via luggage. Uh, we've all been there. And what they did is they got behavioural scientists in to literally watch how people moved and stood and like what happened. And then they redesigned the airport around it. Well, hello, it's not rocket science, is it? And of course, that that worked too. So I love those case studies. They're amazing. And it's yeah, like you say, some of some Not of the stuff sexy, you think, why you know? haven't we changed before? Why why did it need to be a pandemic to make everyone shake shake it up a bit? One of the phrases I love in the book of this kind of people going more freelance, you call it the portable professional. Well, yes, I've actually pinched that from Smythson, the stationers. Um, I'm a total stationary addict, and I really like Smythson. Um, uh, just, I just do. Uh, you keep trying to wean myself off it, <laughs> fail. Um, and uh, I noticed that they use that post-pandemic to market. I think not their stationery, but their bags, the portable professional. And I thought, oh, I'm having some yes. of that. I love it. I love that. And I do find I do think there is a trend towards that. You just said the fact that half of people will be freelance or are already freelance in the UK and definitely in the US. That stat is really high. If that's the way things are going, then. What what change do we need to have from like a policy standpoint? Because freelancers were so messed around during the pandemic, they got hardly any sort of help. And if that's fifty percent of the population, well, not the population, but of um, the, in the UK, what do we need? What framework do we need? Well, there's a whole series of discussions going on around it at the moment. Um, there's a bill coming before Parliament that I'm interested in. I haven't read all of it yet, so I can't sort of take a complete view, but um, on uh, worker identity, really reframing uh, to try and narrow the gap between um, bad practices that penalise, you know, the whole zero hours. And uh, did you know there's a category of worker called limb worker, like a limb, a leg or an arm? So I think legislation is catching up with this. And I think broadly, that's a good thing. And I also think that The trial and error years are with us, and that's no bad thing either. You know, I've never been much of a believer in the five-year plan. I don't know about you. You know, um, if ever a business coach has tried to suggest to me or anybody else, you know, where do you want to be in five years? I think, oh, no, you're not the business coach for me. You know, I'm Mm, quite interested in the the here and now. You know, the short term uh, is important, actually, you know, it, I'm a big fan as well, as you may know, of network science and how it applies to human networks and the distance between your ties, um, the proximity uh, is is significant. And so I think the near future is really important. And I think we're going to have to sort of try and fail and try again. And that's also a big shift, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I just really want there to be more support for people to take risks because I feel like I have a success story of going out and literally doing it myself. And I am a solo entrepreneur and I earn really good money and I work from my kitchen table and I can really design my life however I want it. But I also know that people listening to that 
could romanticize it and also jump into a situation where they get ill and they have nothing to support them or a pandemic happens and they don't have any furlough situation happening. It's just you. It's just on your shoulders. You are literally it. And I think that can be really scary, but it doesn't have to be. If we had a framework to protect us or understand that that's the way we're going to add value to the economy. I think what you're brilliant at, if I may say, in your work is 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 how individuals gain confidence and courage to make that leap. Um, and that's and, why I'm a fan of side hustles, because I do think if you can test the water on the side, you yeah. can gain confidence without just jumping. Well, Charles Handy, the um, octogenarian thought leader, management guru, who I'm really privileged uh, to say is a friend of mine. Um, he he really envisaged a nowhere office many, many years ago in some of his very famous books. Um, and, you know, he, one of his books was called The Second Curve. And it basically says that when you're changing your life, you want to hold on to the old career while you're making the new career. But you're much more expert than me, Emma, on the tactical ways in which individuals can help themselves adjust to the new working world if they're made redundant or if they become freelance. But I come back to this point that I want the workplace, the, the place that provides freelance work or contract work or employed work to function. And that means that the, the HR people, you know, I, I, I'm pausing here because I want to be polite and respectful, but, you know, nobody loves HR, do they? Mm. Why don't they love HR? HR is made up of people, some of them brilliant, because it's not a great department. Uh, I want the workplace to up its game. That's really what I want. And again, I think that's a better perspective to look at this problem from as well as, yes, you want to be um, giving the confidence and the skills to individuals who are, yeah, everyone's going to make their own luck more and more. Mm. Oh, it's so interesting. And I do love that you're coming at it from that angle because it's almost like everyone's like zooming down this motorway and you're just sort of not even on the road. You're just over here going, what about this? Like you're just zooming past and we need to like wave the flag for the actual deep, meaningful topic, which is work. Well, and also I want managers and leaders to feel that they can make a change. You know, the chapter on management is called marzipan management because so many are stuck below the leadership icing. You know, even in organisations that have 30 people or teams of 30 people, someone's always stuck. They've got to get sign off or they've got to wait for reply all or they can't raise something until the management meeting or the quarterly results or the whatever. It's not flowing. It's not it's not what solopreneurs do, which is just we just do it. You know, I've made more U-turns in my business life than, you know, more than anyone I can think of. Actually, I've had so many tremendous failures, but I do regard them as successes in the end because I've not been afraid to fail. Yeah. I've not been afraid to apply the handbrake. Um, it's not always been comfortable for my boards when I've said we've invested all of this in this and we're going to stop. <laughs> but, you know, it's important to have an honesty, whether you are an industry of one or an industry of many. Some other famous, famous business case studies are are um, those that involve industries that got overtaken by technology, like the Xerox photocopying company. You know, I could go on. And all of the successful survival stories in business are of leadership teams digging deep into the very thing they don't want to face, which is we're screwed unless we change. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what I want to see is, is yeah. companies and organizations not sort of trumpeting their credentials and their investment in the well-being and thing, but to say, this is how we don't think we've got it right. This, this is, how is how we need to massively take some risk because the riskiest thing is to just stay the same at this point. Yes. And coming back to the whole office thing. Look, I love hydroponic plants and gorgeous environment. You know, I'm a high maintenance girl. I love all that stuff, but it actually isn't the point. You know, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology famously had a sort of corrugated iron shed. And until they tore it down and refurbished it, it produced 
the best output of ideas that lasted um, for something like half a century. So we need to be a little bit careful about evangelising the office as a fixed building because the truth is creativity can happen everywhere, uh, anywhere and nowhere. I'm not against the idea that we convene meaningfully in well-run, well-lit, nice spaces, but they could be a coffee shop. They don't have to be a skyscraper. They yes. could be a co-working space or they could be a bit of parkland. Mm-hmm. And, and whatever is best for that for that individual team yeah. could be better on Zoom, could be better in real life. It, it's definitely like let's take in each individual case as well and look at it instead of all of these like good morning Britain debates of do we want to go back to the office? Do we not? Yeah. It's like way more than that. And I come back to the family analogy. You know, we're all complex beings and we all have our little personalities and our big personalities. And the more we can align what we do with who we are, the better. And I think this is where you and I probably connect, which is I've also had that strange um, rebellious streak, I think, to just do what I wanted to do. I have no idea why, perhaps because deep down I always thought I was a terrible failure, but it gave me courage to connect very early with sticking to the knitting, which is I've only, only ever done what I want to do. Now, some people would say, oh, well, you're so lucky. You can't expect people to love what they do. This is my big pitch. Why not? Why can't you love what you do? It's funny because this is how this podcast was born is I actually pitched to do a podcast for a company and they took so long signing off the logo and what are you going to do and write me a pitch document and all these bullet points. I just went and did it. And now this is... A, biz- a business in itself and yeah. it's like well everything's so stagnant and so and the processes are so long we're in a world where people can just do it and that is really really exciting just on that point though about the sort of merging of your personality and work being something that you love and almost work and life becoming quite molded together what would you say to someone listening who thinks I just want to work and I want to go home and I just want to earn money and I don't necessarily need it to be a reflection of like who I am? Oh, listen, we need the boundaries. I think we need more boundaries, which is why I'm a bit of a stationary uh, collector. I need to write things down. In fact, I bought the biggest physical diary Smytheson had. I mean, it's ludicrous. Oh I can't God. I can't take it out can't of can't imagine house. how much that would cost. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't imagine how much it weighs, you know. But the reason is that I want to see what I'm doing and I want to see the space when I'm not doing anything. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important. So I'm not advocating rushing around. In fact, you know, the stuff that you raise in your new book, Disconnected, is absolutely on point. And I raised it in a book called Fully Connected a few years ago. And we're having another turn on the wheel of angst about being constantly connected and constantly on. And I think the answer is better boundaries, Mm -hmm. more management as if we were I mean, your wonderful guest, Philippa Perry, a few uh, seasons ago, talked about the boundaries that children need, the support and the freedom. But, you know, let's go to the old inner child argument. We need to have boundaries. And that means being able to switch off, being able to kick back. Um, I did a lot of interviews for the book uh, to get different perspectives. And um, Mohit Bakaya, the controller of Radio 4, um, came up with a fantastic phrase about the challenges of working from home. And he said, you need a good airlock. And I thought that was brilliant. Mm -hmm. You need a good airlock, whether you live in a mansion or whether you live in a mansion flat or whether you live in a shared apartment, you need to be able to say enough already. So I hope I'm not saying, you know, working 24-7 is fab. Of course it's not. But what you do when you work should feel fab. And if it doesn't, I think that should be an alarm bell more than it is. I think people have accepted the idea that work is full of office politics Mm. and is full of commutes and is full of pointlessness. And I think it's time to say... No, no, no. Yes. No, no, no. These are the conversations (laughs) we need to be having definitely now and and probably, well, before you have anyway. But there's a really good TED talk actually about how now that we don't have physical boundaries, we need psychological boundaries. And that is a whole 
tool that I am still working on? How do you have a psychological, the shop front is going down? I'm not quite there yet, but I need to. Well, my last book was called The Simplicity Principle, and it was very much about making sure that we don't overload ourselves cognitively and go over the, 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 the working memory limit of seven at its simplest. And so the number one aspect, I think, of the simplicity principle is clarity, is if you are muddled and overwhelmed and overloaded, you can't kind of do anything, can you? And I think we do get very overwhelmed uh, very easily by the blizzard of of tech and the internet. But for me, the way through that is to be able to make a decision like I'm going to do these three things and not Mm. these 30 things. Yes, yes, Um, definitely. You know, and so organizational behavior and management techniques, back to my nerdy self, I think have a real role in the nowhere office. I think that, you know, the more we're in cyberspace and twixt and between hard physical places, the more we need guidelines and guardrails and boundaries, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I've, we've gone all over the place, but I knew I would today, Just not just because I have brain fog, but um, that was so much fun. And before I ask you my last question I will say um, to everyone listening if you enjoyed this go and read all of Julia's books as I will be doing now that you've mentioned the other ones that I haven't read um, I've really really enjoyed it but for you personally then with this book being out in the world because so many people are going to go and read it but I feel like you're on a personal mission as well I get that sense that you really want this to make change. Will you be going into certain companies or doing certain things to try and shift? Yes I'm being asked to talk mm. to um organizations let's just say some 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 government and some corporate and some non-profit and yeah i i do want to see change i i suppose i want to sort of empower people to think they can be part of the change they can unpick and unpack what they didn't need and they can create afresh what they do need um but without a top-down approach and without an antagonistic approach uh but a much more reset, rebuild. I suppose I'd finish by saying that quite a lot of people have heard of the great resignation, but actually not that many people are really resigning. They just say they would if they could and they might. I think what we are experiencing across the piece is a great reassessment. And out of reassessment, out of challenge comes change and I'm all for it. Well, thank you. It is so nice to read something optimistic, I've got to say, because there, this book is, even the front cover, it's just, there's an optimism there. So thank you so much. My total pleasure. Thanks for having me on. 